Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe today is the first day of August. Where is summer going? Well, it's going quick. But you know what? I'm glad to be back on the air with all of you. Um, I say that all the time, but there's a reason for it. It's because you guys are the driving force. Because of listeners like you all, I always have something to look forward to when it comes to podcasting. Because I know every time a podcast episode is completed, the results I get are meaning are meaningful, and they go beyond the sky's ceiling. I may not hit the grand slam right away, but even if I get 12 or 15 plays right away, that tells me that at least there is a handful of you all out there who are constantly eager to learn about anything, regardless of the subject I share with you all. So, thank you all, my fellow 101 listeners. Keep up the good work. So here we are again discussing signing their rights away, which we will be continuing to do so um, until I know that it's time to move on. Uh, Signing their rights away, that is, the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the United States Constitution by Denise Kiernan and Joseph Diagnes. Well, the last time I was on the air, we were discussing about Delaware. Are we going to discuss a neighboring state of Delaware's in this uh, podcast episode? The, the answer is yes. And what state would that be? It's a neighbor. It's uh, none other than Maryland. So our leadoff bonus question is the following. How many delegates did Maryland send to Philadelphia for the Constitutional Convention? Did they send the same number as Delaware being five or less than five? The answer is five just like Delaware. But we're going to find out here soon that maybe or maybe not all five delegates did sign. In other words, yes, there were signers to the Constitution from Maryland, but we will find out here soon if all five signed. As for the other part to this bonus question, well, first off, the answer being five, that there were five um, delegates from Maryland who were sent to Philadelphia, but were there any signers from Maryland who were born outside America? Uh, the answer to that one is yes, and we're going to be discussing this particular individual as our first uh, delegate from Maryland. His name is James McHenry, and there is a reason why James McHenry is important. But then again, everyone whom I've discussed bears importance, regardless of their stature. They contributed to something great that's still been around for just over 233 years. So, for starters, what do we know about James McHenry? Was he born just before the French and Indian War broke out, or was he born after the French and Indian War started? Well, he was born before the French and Indian War broke out. He was born November 16, 1753, into a Presbyterian Scots-Irish family in Ballamania, or Ballamina County, or what's known as uh, Antrim Ireland, what we now call today as Northern Ireland. 
Okay, so I'm sure most of you are itching to know the following. When and what year did James come to America? Did he come in 1765? Did he come in 1770? Or did he come in 1771? He came in 1771. He started out by living with a friend in Philadelphia, but he would return later to that uh, city, or I should say America's largest city, because for a long period of time, Philadelphia was America's largest city, leading up to um, the time shots were heard around the world, as well as after the American Revolution comes to an end. But yes, he starts out living with a friend in Philadelphia and would later return there by studying what trade? Did he study medicine? Did he study law? Or did he study a trade in terms of like being a blacksmith or a silversmith? He, he went on to study medicine. Whom do you think he would have studied medicine under? This man's prominent. As a matter of fact, uh, we discussed uh, about him uh, when doing um, signing their lives away, the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence by the same authors. Does the name uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush ring a bell? It ought to, because he is a pro he is a what you call high-profile doctor in Philadelphia, and if you're wanting to study medicine. In America, you go to Philadelphia, and chances are you might apprentice under Dr. Benjamin Rush. And Dr. Benjamin Rush would go on to become one of the 56 men whom signed their lives away, a.k.a. signing the Declaration of Independence. Will James McHenry's um, med medicinal knowledge or medical skills that he learns under his apprenticeship from uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush, will they serve um, a vital importance once we go to war with England? Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, James McHenry served in the Revolutionary War as a surgeon to the 5th Pennsylvania Battalion, whom was stationed at New York. Whereabouts in New York? Well, what we now know is um, around the outskirts of Long Island, um, more than likely around um, Brooklyn Heights, um, Kipps Bay, um, upper around what we now know as Manhattan. You know, that I've said it before, I'd say it again, that uh, New York campaign was a disaster for the Continental Army. Thank heavens we had weather on our side that um, halted British advances to where they would have cut off our um, would have cut off any means of crossing the river, and had that and had the weather not been to our advantage, they would have succeeded, and more than likely the revolution itself would have come to an end. But uh, yes, he is uh, with the Fifth Pennsylvania Battalion in New York, and ironically, he becomes prisoner of war. I don't, and that's not a good thing at all to be a prisoner of war. As a matter of fact, more men lost their lives in the American Revolution underneath prison prison ships, prisoner of war ships, rather than they did on the battlefield. As a matter of fact, most of the, I wouldn't say most, all of the prisoners who were aboard these ships were given two choices. 
if they took up arms with the king or with the British, I, I would say they would have been forgiven of their treason. That is being disloyal to the crown by taking up arms against England, a.k.a. the mother country. And these prisoners refused to take up arms. So they stayed below the decks of these ships, and many of them died a horrible, agonizing death. Historians do believe that over somewhere over 10,000 men lost their lives as a result of being prisoners of war. And I've seen documentaries on the History Channel about these men who were prisoners of war and the conditions they lived in, and they were deplorable. In some ways, it almost, I can't make a full comparison, but I did see similarities that reminded me of just how horrible the Holocaust was and what um, the Jews had to endure. But there again, I can't make the full-scale comparison, but based off of the documentaries I saw and the readings that I've read involving prisoners of war during the American Revolution, there are similarities, uh, to say the least. But as for uh, James McHenry, he saw firsthand how prisoners received little to, to no medical care, and by an act of God, he was released come 1778 through a prisoner exchange. If there were any prisoners of war, they were released on the grounds of um, their rank and status. So rank and status folks often had a lot to, to do with whether or not prisoners of war uh, were released, most notably on the American side. But I can say that um, James McHenry was not um, a prisoner of war in a British in a British warship. But more often than not, when I think of uh, prisoners of war in the American Revolution, I tend to think of them uh, being confined to the British ships. But thank heavens he was not um, in that um, under those circumstances. So he's released come 1778, and his services take him to Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, as well as the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse, New Jersey. And from August of 1780 till late 1781, he serves under Marquis de Lafayette's staff. James McHenry, we could say, has not missed out on anything, but at the same time, Seeing firsthand how prisoners received minimal medical care, I could see how that had a profound impact on him. After British forces surrendered at Yorktown in October of 1781, did James McHenry resume practicing medicine back in Maryland? No, um, he did not. Okay, so if he didn't resume practicing medicine, what did he decide to do instead? Well, his father passed away uh, shortly after 1781, and he received a large inheritance from his father's passing. This allowed James McHenry to pursue a um, different career, or I should say a different careers. He went about going into politics where he served as a delegate to the Congress of Confederation from 1784 to 1787. And how ironic, in 1784, he gets married, marries a woman by the name of Peggy Caldwell.
Were all five of Maryland's delegates unified on issues at hand during the Constitutional Convention? We all would like to think of our forefathers as being unified on everything, but we have to remember that uh, there was gridlock. Of course, we've learned that Benjamin Franklin found ways to break the ice by telling stories to diffuse, that would help diffuse current uh, tense situations. Perhaps by his breaking the ice, it was his way of reminding people, hey, look, we're all in this together. Yes, we have our differences, but let's not um, bite everyone's heads off to the point where, where if we do so, we'll burn bridges and never be able to get those bridges back. So as for whether all five of Maryland's delegates were unified on the issues at hand during the convention, I would have to say that they were not. However, James McHenry himself often broke the two to the two to two splits. So if you have the other four delegates, two are in favor of something, the other two aren't, it was James McHenry that could break that uh, deadlock vote and vote in favor of something to where it would be three in favor and two against. But his voice and his votes often were the ones that helped favor supporting a strong national government. McHenry would go on to be one of three Marylanders to sign the Constitution out of the five-member state delegation sent to Philadelphia. So there, there's our answer right there, folks. Not all five signers from Maryland signed, but three of them did. So that means 60% of the delegates from Maryland signed, the other 40% didn't. So let's keep in mind that while, yes, 74 delegates originally started out in Philadelphia, 19 left for various personal reasons, and then um, you had 55, and then you had a handful of others who, actually I take it back, it was 15, about 55 of them originally were there, 16, 13 left for various reasons, and then three of them could have signed but chose not to, and that will have to be shared at another, in another podcast. Did James McHenry serve in George Washington's cabinet when Washington becomes our nation's first president? Now, the answer is yes. Washington appointed McHenry to Secretary of War, the Secretary of War post, towards the very end of Washington's presidency. So let's keep in mind that um, even in the earliest days of our republic's existence, there were administrators in Washington's cabinet that did not serve the entire eight years that he was in office. Thomas Jefferson was Washington's Secretary of State up until the end of 1793. Alexander Hamilton did not serve the entire duration of Washington's presidency as the Treasury Secretary. And we find that even in today's um, in, in today's modern-day um, executive branch, where, of course, there are more cabinet posts than there were in 1789, but just because one is Secretary of State, that doesn't mean that he or she will serve out the duration of the president's four- or eight-year term. So James McHenry serves as Washington's Secretary of War in, starting in 1796. What do you think he would have overseen? 
Well, he oversaw an assortment of tasks ranging from the increase, ranging from increasing army and navy, and I will uh, discuss more of that here in a moment, to adding more warships to raising money to constructing a star-shaped fort in Baltimore, Maryland's port that one day would prove to be America's saving grace during her second war for independence. And those of you who were with me last year, remember the book um, Through the Perilous Fight, The Star-Spangled Banner, The Burning of Washington, To the Six Weeks That Saved the Nation? Remember that, folks. Whenever we think of a second war for independence, we have to think of the War of 1812. For those of you who haven't read through the Perilous Fight, I strongly recommend reading it. It's, it's, it'll make you appreciate just how, um, just how vulnerable we were to, to losing our status as an independent country. James McHenry helped reorganize the U.S. Army into four regiments of infantry, troop, a troop of dragoons, to a battery of artillery, as well as helping set up the U.S. Navy. Okay, folks, so whenever you think of the U.S. Navy now, you can thank James McHenry. And whenever I think of dragoons, I always think of the American Revolution. Bannister, Bannister Tarleton, a.k.a. Bloody Ban from England, he was the, uh, probably the father of British Dragoon legions. They were the ones that were so powerful that whenever early on in the southern campaign that uh, when our forces saw them, they were literally terrified by them. They were that ruthless. And of course, if any of you are wondering how, why was Bannister Tarleton called Bloody Ban, because let's say those of you on the American side threw down your arms, waved the truce flag, or motioned your arms that you were surrendering, he would take his sword and charge you. And I'm not here to f frighten you all or to scare you with what I'm going to say that's graphic, but it did happen. Bannister Tarleton and his men would take their swords and, and whack off one's shoulder, meaning their arm, or would stab someone in the chest. That's how ruthless these dragoons were. They didn't care about their boundaries. And it proved especially in the Waxhaw Massacre in late 1780, where Abraham Buford and his forces, at the very last minute, someone had shot into the Dragoon forces, and then the truce flag came up, but the truce flag was not recognized. Bannister Tarleton and his men would go on to massacre a hundred of Abraham Buford's men, and the rally cry after that battle became, Remember the Waxhaws. So whenever you think of dragoons, you can always think of Bannister Tarleton. Would James McHenry serve in the same post being Secretary of War under John Adams' presidency from 1797 to 1801? Yes. However, though, James McHenry himself resigned from his post in May of 1800 due to President Adams' internal conflicts with other cabinet members. John Adams was a very smart man, but but one of his uh, one of the problems he inherited was that uh, he had men who were holdovers from Washington's administration who, in the end, found it very hard to get along with John Adams. And some of these men went behind his back and did things that were 
perhaps in Adams's eyes, unbecoming. James McHenry and John Adams were not very close, and some historians do believe that McHenry himself had a role in helping defeat Adams's re-election bid for the presidency. Well, many historians know that Alexander Hamilton was to blame for um, ruining John Adams's uh, re-election bid. But then again, Alexander Hamilton, as smart of a man he was in terms of financial concepts with running the government, he was a man whom uh, could not be trusted. He was a man who went around and found fault not only with people like Thomas Jefferson, the Anti-Federalists. Hamilton found fault with many in his own party, being the Federalists, to where he pretty much may have had a leading role in helping um, become responsible for the demise of his own political party come the start of 1820, that party would no longer be in existence. You know, just because you're affiliated with a party who's in power doesn't mean that everyone within that party gets along all the time. It's wishful thinking. After stepping down from the Secretary of War post in 1800, did James McHenry remain active politically? Yes, he, along with many other Federalists, had opposed the War of 1812. And remember, uh, that, that declaration of war was pretty much on party lines. It was one of those wars that we should have thought a little bit more carefully about before declaring war on England, because there were many who were skeptical of the fact that we did not have a strong army. And James Madison firmly believed that the war itself could be won with militias. James Madison believed, did not, was not a firm believer in standing armies. But even in, into the early 19th century, folks, there are still many people who are very, very skeptical of, of why a standing army should even be in existence. And if you learn more about the War of 1812, especially through the book, uh, Through the Perilous Fight, you will come to understand just how important a standing army is, even in times of peace, and why there needed to be one to defend the capital. Um, how about this, uh, folks? This is something else that I should point out. James McHenry, yes, as I said earlier, he was married. But he also had a son who fought at the same fort, a.k.a. the star-shaped fort, that James McHenry um, helped oversee get built. It was at this fort where America's national anthem would get composed by a fellow named Francis Scott Key. Now, for years we were told that Francis Scott Key wrote our national anthem just peacefully at his desk. You know, that that's something we would all like to believe, but it turns out that Francis Scott Key did not have that luxury. He was aboard a British warship called the HMS Tennant, or Tunnant. Why was he aboard a British warship? Well, long story short, and you, I, I should tell you all this now, so that for those of you who are new to my podcasts, 
when you read more into the book through the perilous fight, you will get the true story behind why the War of 1812 occurred and why the Battle of Baltimore was so essential and why Francis Scott Key's presence in the Baltimore Harbor was so crucial because it wasn't just him being aboard a warship and watching a battle take place. It was what was happening through the night and what transpired from nighttime into daytime. There were a handful of prisoners underneath, um, or what you call in the lowest level of the uh, ship, or what we call the bottom deck. There were a group of prisoners that Francis Scott Key along with the prisoner-of-war agent named John Stuart Skinner, were working with British forces aboard the ship to negotiate an exchange to get these uh, prisoners released. And while this battle was going on into the night, Francis Scott Key, this battle was September of 1814, so August of 1814 was when the was when the British um, burned the Capitol, they burned the White House, they burned every building except for the patent office. Th this was a frightening time, folks. This was pretty much like the equivalent of a 9-11 of the 19th century. And maybe something equivalent to what happened on January the 6th. But as the night grew as the as day turned to night what do you think francis scott key would have seen rockets red glare bombs bursting in the air as the rockets are as the rockets red glare the bombs are bursting in the air francis scott key sees our flag our large american flag standing mightily tall above this star-shaped fort, looking high into the sky. The enemy exchanging series of cannons. We are conserving our energy. We are firing back, but we're not firing back left and right. It's raining. And for Francis Scott Key, he has to wonder... What will tomorrow bring? Will our flag still be there? Or will we succumb to the British, just like how we succumbed by allowing them to burn our Capitol and our White House and burn every other building except for the patent office? Baltimore, folks, is what is, is, what is left standing between a unified United States and a United States that might not even exist if the British are successful in defeating us in Baltimore. Well, gave proof through the night, come next morning, gave proof through the night, as our national anthem says after that verse, that our flag was still there. What that means is come next morning, it was known that it was a cloudy morning. Fog was still there. But somehow Francis Scott Key managed to somehow see 
through either a telescope or with his own bare eyes, our flag, still standing mightily tall and proud. So it was through the darkest of moments. Francis Scott Key's personal experience with what he saw at Baltimore Harbor September of 1814 inspired him to write what became the Star-Spangled Banner. And that star-shaped fort in Baltimore's port became known as Fort McHenry in honor of James McHenry. So that, to me, folks, is why this is personal. Yes, we have a wonderful national anthem, but remember, it, this wasn't written on leisure terms. This was written in a time of crisis. This was written at a time that, who's to say, America might not have even existed had we not won this battle. We went to battle at Baltimore because Baltimore was a far more prominent city than the nation's capital was. The nation's capital was a wilderness, folks. So I hope that all of you got something out of this. And yes, read Steve Vogel's book, Through the Perilous Fight. You will truly gain a better appreciation of what it means to be an American when you learn about the sacrifices that were made in America's Forgotten War, the War of 1812. What took place in Maryland on April 28, 1788? Maryland became the seventh state to ratify the Constitution, and James McHenry did play a part in seeing to it that it took place. Sadly, on May 3, 1816, James McHenry lost his life at the age of 62, and it turns out that he is buried in the same cemetery as Edgar Allan Poe. I'm going to tell you all a quick funny story. I owe it to you all. I was between the ages of four and five, and my parents took me and other family members of mine. We went to Richmond, that is Richmond, Virginia. Edgar Allan Poe lived there for a period of time. But then again, he lived in a lot of places. We learned, my wife and I learned when we were in Philadelphia that he was actually born in Boston. I knew he attended the University of Virginia. He even lived in Maryland for a period of time, but he also lived in uh, Richmond, Virginia. And remember, I'm between the ages of four and five here, so I ring on the, uh, I, not, I either knock on the doorbell or ring the doorbell a couple of times. No response. So I randomly just tell my parents that the following. He must not be home. We'll have to try him back later at another time. Whenever I tell that story to friends of mine or just people in general, they get a big chuckle out of it. Why not? I didn't know any better at the time, but it was a heck of a good educated guess. But um, I do know for a fact that the man's been gone for a little over 170 some odd years. So I don't believe he'll be coming back home anytime soon. But I do know that um, the closest I could get to him if I really wanted to was to go visit his uh, cemetery um, in Maryland where he and uh, James McHenry are buried. Um, I don't know if they're buried side by side, but they are buried in that same cemetery. So thought you all might like a little humor, uh, as, but then again, in this, um, in, the, in the world we're living in now, we could use all, all the humor we can get regardless of the matter. So we're going to move on to our second delegate here, but before we do, I'll ask you all this question. Besides Thomas Fitzsimmons of Pennsylvania, whom was Roman Catholic, which other signer also had a unique distinction of being, of being Roman Catholic? 
As I had said from a previous podcast, there were two men who signed the U.S. Constitution who were of Roman Catholic faith. The first was Thomas Fitzsimmons. How about Daniel Carroll? All right, what do we know about Daniel Carroll? He was born on July 22, 1730 in Upper Marlboro, Maryland. He was the son of wealthy planters whose estate comprised of 27,000 acres. That's a lot of acreage, folks. Can you imagine living on an estate that's close to 30,000 acres? Daniel Carroll was one of seven children, and I'm going to point this out because this is very significant to know. He had a younger brother named John Carroll, who went on to become the first Roman Catholic bishop in the United States, and John Carroll also went about establishing Georgetown University located in Washington, D.C. around 1789 or 1790. And there is a college outside of Cleveland, Ohio, known as John Carroll College. So whenever you hear of someone by the last name of Carroll, most notably during this time, think of the Carroll family from Maryland. That's spelled C-A-R-R-O-L-L. I should also point out this. Well, I'm going to ask you this question. Was the Carroll family one of the wealthiest families in all 13 colonies? Believe it or not, folks, they were. You know, when I think of wealthy families in Virginia, I think of the Randolphs, I think of the Byrds, I think of the Lees and the Custises, um, just to name a few of a uh, few prominent families in Virginia who uh, were significant land land owners. I also think of the Carters as well, most notably Robert Carter, a.k.a. King Carter, who owned land as far west as present-day Ohio, considering at one time present-day Ohio was considered Virginia. But believe it or not, folks, the Carroll family was one of the wealthiest families in all 13 colonies. While that is a, a unique and distinctive honor, there is a catch or rather a disadvantage. It was one thing for them to be one of the wealthiest families in all, 13 in, in all 13 colonies, but because they were Catholic, their opportunities were greatly restricted. When we talked about Thomas Fitzsimmons, we talked about how Catholics were not even allowed to vote. They couldn't practice law. They couldn't hold public office. They really couldn't do much of anything. So if you were of Catholic faith and and you are married, and you have children. What advantages do you think your children could have had school-wise? Well, number one, you could have hired a private tutor and tutored your children from home, or if you had the money, you could send them abroad to study to get a Catholic education overseas. So as for Daniel Carroll, he was educated privately, and from 1742 to 1748, he and his brother John studied under the Jesuits at the College of Saint-Omer in France. So that's where they went, folks. I can't imagine being in Daniel Carroll's shoes, being 12 years old, going overseas. And, you know, it's one thing to send your child overseas, but then you have to, then you wonder, okay, is my child going to come home alive? Or will my child be safe overseas? Because 
even during this time, there are conflicts overseas. I mean, you know, think about this. We don't have a telephone, so we don't have a way of FaceTiming or Skyping like there is today and, and staying in constant contact. The only real means of contact that, that families had when, they, when a loved one went overseas was by sending a letter. And, of course, that may have taken at least six weeks at best for a letter to um, be sent transatlantic by water. And who knows, by the time another family member received the letter, who's to say if that family member might still be alive? Those are all the risks that go in when you send when a loved one goes overseas and not knowing if they came home alive. In this case, Daniel and his younger brother John did, though, thank heavens. Was Daniel Carroll a successful businessman? He was. He excelled greatly at exporting tobacco, but he also did well with buying and selling land. And I should point out that Daniel Carroll was one of the unique exceptions in that he didn't get caught up in these land speculation deals, um, most notably in the after the Constitution was signed. Somehow he managed to not um, get into large amounts of debt. I believe it's fair to say that some of our forefathers were successful enough to where they just had that good of a golden touch to where they didn't land up in debtor's prison like other ones did. What was unique about Maryland's 1776 state constitution? For one, it abolished the Church of England as the state-supported religion. I knew even on when Maryland was first settled that it became a Catholic uh, refuge, but I didn't realize just how strong Maryland's role was, a.k.a. Church of England. But I do believe that all 13 colonies had, well, most notably Virginia. Virginia was, no doubts, Virginia was predominantly, wouldn't say predominantly, it was 100% Church of England. Even if you did not wish to be a member of the Church of England, your taxes still went towards the Anglican Church. Being a church-affiliated, uh, a state-affiliated church. So the 1776 Maryland State Constitution abolishes the Church of England as a state-supported religion. Secondly, it allowed all Christians, most notably Roman Catholics. Did you hear that, folks? Roman Catholics to worship freely and give free African Americans the right to vote if they met property qualification guidelines. This is a huge step in the right direction. And is it fair to say now, folks, that Daniel Carroll will be allowed to do, some, to do more things compared to what he could not have done years earlier? Yes. Does that mean being able to take part in voicing not just your opposition to the crown, but perhaps taking part in other monumental historical underlying makings? Absolutely so. Did Daniel Carroll have a cousin whom signed the Declaration of Independence? You've heard me mention his name before. Yes, his cousin's name was Charles Carroll. And why is Char Charles Carroll such an important figure? 
He's an important figure for a variety of reasons. Number one, he was the only Roman Catholic signer to sign the Declaration of Independence. Charles Carroll also would go on to become the last signer to die from the Declaration of Independence um, era or generation. In other words, folks, come July of 1826, there were three signers left still living who signed the Declaration of Independence. One lived in Virginia, the other in Massachusetts, and the other in Maryland. Who was the one that lived in Virginia, folks? Thomas Jefferson. Who was living in Massachusetts? John Adams. Thomas Jefferson died on the morning, July 4th, 1826, and historians believe that his last words were the following. Is it the 4th? In other words, did I live to see July 4th? And his servant who was with him said yes. Thomas Jefferson died that morning, but little did he know that John Adams was in ill health and would die later that day, and historians believe his last words were the following, Thomas Jefferson still survives. But little did anybody know that there was still another man from the Declaration of Independence generation that was still living, who would live another six years after 1826, and that was Daniel Carroll's cousin Charles, who lived to be 95. That, to me, is beyond anything in my, beyond accomplishment. Very few people lived to be 95 years old at that time. But what I find amazing about Charles Carroll is that it's not so much he lived to be 95, but he lived to see the Erie Canal get completed. He also served on the board of directors to the Baltimore and Ohio Baltimore and Ohio Railroad that was established in 1828 and he helped oversee the laying the initial cornerstone layings of the Baltimore Ohio Railroad itself so the Carroll family folks is one of uh, many unique accomplishments and we're going to find out some more accomplishments here soon about uh, Daniel and all but I can tell you this much, uh, Charles Carroll did outlive Daniel probably by about 35 years. But that's not to say that Daniel's accomplishments aren't, Daniel's accomplishments are just as noteworthy as his cousins, uh, as his cousin Charles's were. We know from 1777 to 1781, Daniel served in the Maryland State Senate where he helped raise troops and money for the Patriot cause, and towards re the Revolutionary War's end, he got elected to the Confederation Congress, and he helped Maryland ratify the Articles of Confederation. And why was that important? Yes, I know the Articles of Confederation wasn't the best government, and yes, it was probably a good thing in the end that it got scrapped, but at the time, we needed to have something to function, and it's, and it's probably safe to say at that time, when the Articles of Confederation were instituted, or put into play, it's maybe it's fair to say that there were people who could have said something similar to what Benjamin Franklin would say in 1787, it's the best we could do. Or, of course, as Franklin said, it's not the perfect document, but it's the best we could do. So, uh, for Daniel Carroll, he was the one that helped uh, Maryland ratify the Articles of Confederation, and by doing so, Maryland became the last of the 13 states to except that new governing document. Let me ask you this. 
was Daniel Carroll originally asked to be to become a delegate to the Constitutional Convention? No. Did it have anything to do with him in general? No. But it turns out that Daniel's cousin Charles was the one that was originally asked to become a delegate, but Charles turned it down, therefore making Daniel next in line for attending the event. That's how Daniel got asked to become a delegate. Was Daniel Carroll a nationalist? Yes. He supported Alexander Hamilton's concept behind a strong central financial institution, a.k.a. the National Bank, to having the federal government take over various state debts from the Revolutionary War. Daniel Carroll opposed, I find this interesting, there were men early on who wanted Congress to elect the president. That is, they wanted Congress to be the ones to directly elect the president, but Daniel Carroll didn't see it that way. He opposed the idea, he opposed that idea, and he wanted the president instead to be elected directly by the people. The people being those who, um, being those who should have a greater voice in their government. They are the ones that should be electing the president, not a select group of men, meaning a smaller body. But it turns out, folks, that while, yes, we have what's called a popular vote, we also have what's called that electoral college, which is the one that actually declares the, the winner, meaning who actually wins the presidency. But yes, having people at large vote for our president is what Daniel Carroll envisioned, and he would be glad to know that we still have that today. April 28th, 1788 is important. I, forgive me, I probably already mentioned it already, and I do apologize, but yes, it's important because Maryland uh, ratified the Constitution by becoming the seventh state to do so. And did Daniel Carroll serve in the first United States Congress come 1789? Yes, he did. He affiliated himself as a Federalist, he joined alongside men like James Madison of Virginia and William Patterson of New Jersey in drafting amendments to the Constitution. And when I say amendments, folk, amendments, folks, I'm talking about the Bill of Rights, a.k.a. the first ten amendments, like that first amendment, for example, the right to free speech, the right to assemble and petition, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, What post did Daniel Carroll accept under President George Washington in 1791? This is very, very important, folks. He accepted a commissioner post where, along with two other men, would go, they would go about overseeing the surveying, designing, and construction of our nation's new capital. Well, where is the uh, current uh, capital in 1791? Or rather, I should, uh, let's jog our memory here. When George Washington became president in 1789, where was the capital at that time? Was it in Boston? Was it in um, New York City? Or was it in Philadelphia? It was in New York City. How long was New York City our nation's capital, folks? From 1789 to 1790. 
So in 1791, our nation's capital is still in Philadelphia. How long will it last in Philadelphia? Is it, will it last 20 years? Or will it last um, 15 or 10? The answer is 10. There was a compromise made where the Southerners would go along with Alexander Hamilton's uh, financial um, ideologies, and the Northerners agreed to keep the capital in Philadelphia for 10 years. So from 1790 to 1800, folks, Philadelphia was our nation's capital. George Washington and John Adams both had the luxury of being our only two presidents who lived in Philadelphia during that span being when our nation's capital was located there. As a matter of fact, when my wife and I were in Philadelphia, we actually saw um, a replica of what was the president's house, but we saw below where original where some of the original foundations were um, had existed. That was really neat. Not anything close to what we know as the White House, as our uh, as the White House as we know today. But nonetheless, it was very well worth seeing. So, even as we go into 1791, we know that Philadelphia is not going to be our nation's capital forever. We know that come 1800, a new nation, a new capital will be located not in the southern United States and not in the northern United States, but it will be at a halfway point between north and south. So Daniel Carroll is one of two, he's one of three men who goes about overseeing the surveying, designing, and construction of our nation, of, of what will one day be our nation's new permanent capital, a.k.a. Washington, D.C. And the new capital location along the Potomac River was truly essential. How so? Well, it turns out that Daniel Carroll owned the majority of that land. Would it be fair to say that the Carroll family had a huge influence in determining where this, where the new capital was going to be located? Perhaps so. And it's probably fair to say even back then that money talked, that money had a way of persuading people to do things that they otherwise would not have thought about wanting to do all along. So the majority of the land where our nation's capital exists now was owned by Daniel Carroll. He served as commissioner until 1795 when he stepped down due to health reasons. He died on May 7, 1796 at age 65 at his home near Rock Creek, Maryland. And to think his cousin Charles lived another 36 years. 65, I mean, even back then is considered old age. I mean, very few people, I mean, living to 50 alone would have been considered old but even to have lived to have been 65 was definitely considered old age for that time. But uh, whenever we think of the Carrolls, folks, we definitely need to think of men like Charles Carroll, Daniel Carroll, even Daniel's brother John for being the first um, Catholic bishop in the United States. So we do have this family to thank. They, um, they contributed significantly to our country and overcame religious discrimination by doing so. And I bet most people would not know that at one time the Carrolls were one of the wealthiest families in America. 
So it just goes to show you that even when having to overcome religious discrimination, not just based on one being Protestant and the other being Catholic, that the American dream was possible for for those who were of Catholic faith. We learned that with Thomas Fitzsimmons, and now we have learned that with Daniel Carroll and the Carroll family as a greater whole. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and I look forward to being back on the air again next. And when I am on the air next, we're going to be talking about, we're going to be starting the uh, southern states. However, I should say that um, they will be divided into two sections, the upper south and the lower south. But the state we'll be talking about next probably deserves to be called the granddaddy of them all. If I tell you all any more, there may not be a, a good surprise worth knowing about. Thank you again, as always, for listening. I look forward to being back on the air again with you all soon. And thanks again uh, from the bottom of my heart to all of you because you guys have just been wonderful listeners. You all have gotten the word out to so many others. Continue to do that. Continue to expand your mind and learn things that you didn't know before. And that's why I'm here to do that. I may not know all the answers to everything, and that's okay. But I enjoy history and i know it's not pretty but i still do everything there is in my power to learn about stuff that's not pretty so that it can be discussed properly in a manner that where people can still walk away knowing that okay if this unfortunate event happened at one time what can we do to ensure that it doesn't happen again so that we don't make the same mistakes so keep the torch alive because not to get political, but you know there are people out there who don't want to, to teach this stuff. There are people who, who, who unfortunately don't care, and that's not good. But let's not be like those people. Sh let's make a better example. Let's show that we could still learn this stuff. Let's show that we could still educate those out there who want to be educated and who want to learn more about history itself, because history is not going away. But it's up to us to keep teaching what needs to be taught. And that's why I will continue to stay on the air with you all as long as I know it's necessary. And I want to stay on the air for a long time. Believe me, I, I, I'm not going anywhere. I'm glad to be on the air with you guys. And that's why I'm thankful I have you all as devout listeners. So keep it up, folks. Thank you for the support. And I look forward to being back on the air again next time. Take care.